The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thank you for joining me on Psych Up Live. The title of our show today is The Story of a Transgender Marriage When a Husband Became a Wife. With the coming out of Caitlyn Jenner as Women of the Year in 2015 and media reminders of the transitions of Christine Jorgensen, Judge Phyllis Fry, Chas Bono, as well as the award-winning series Transparent and the powerful film The Danish Girl, there has been increased recognition of gender people in the public eye. As a result, some have truly come to embrace and support transgender men and women. Others have pushed back with fear, political rejection, stereotyping, and sadly, even violence. In the midst of this, we rarely hear about the people who love someone whose gender identification has never matched their assigned gender. Today, we have that opportunity. We're going to hear from someone who has taken that journey. Our guest is Kristen Collier. She is the author of Housewife, Home Remaking in a Transgender Marriage. This book has received feature attention in the Daily Mail, The Sun, and Vanity Fair. Kristen has been teaching compassionate communication since 2004. As an author, she has appeared in The Sun magazine, and her poetry is a front piece for Michael and Kathleen O'Neill Gears' People of the Sea. Kristen Collier it is my pleasure to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Well, thank you so much for having me, Suzanne. Kristen, what prompted you to write this very personal and powerful book? Well, it was quite a journey, I have to say, from the time that I married a Wyoming cowboy when I was 18 years old and thought that I was leaving behind a life going into the theater, which would be dealing with all kinds of people with their hearts on their sleeves and the emotional up and downs, I thought, okay, I'm going to marry somebody who's really solid and settled and predictable. And um, fancy that 12 years ago, he told me that he wanted to wear women's clothes. It was um, a journey to come to the place where she realized that she really did identify as a woman and probably always had, even though she'd been in denial about it. And then it was a journey for us together to work with that information and the way that it shifted our lives, our roles, our relationship. And one of the things that really drove me to write this book was about the time that she came out to me, I began the study of nonviolent communication or compassionate communication for the purposes of living that. And then I wanted to share my practice very quickly Um, because I saw that there was a real need for people to parent with compassion and to live with compassion. And so in in taking a nine-month course on leadership, I at the same time discovered that she wanted to be a woman, you know, full-time. And so I had like this built-in workshop (laughs) to study Mm -hmm. with 
And then afterwards, I thought, wow, you know, after, you know, it was many years through the course of that transition, and we really were present with the process. And so it took some time, and culturally, we're, we were in a different place, you know, a decade ago than we are even now. And mm-hmm. so there was a lot more resistance and perceived resistance from, from the community, and how we redefined ourselves and each other and, and, our, and our relationship and our family and opened up that family with love, you know, but, but possibly at the sacrifice of, of the roles that we'd formerly had, that process of using compassionate communication to stay present was one that I wanted to share because it wasn't like an overnight flip the switch, oh, it's really hard, and then, oh, they're okay with it now, and she's okay with it, and she's moving on. Um, it was more like a moving with, moving through, and today, even now, you know, we don't have a commitment to stay together forever no matter what. We just have a commitment to stay together for as long as it makes sense, and it hasn't stopped making sense in over 25 years of marriage. <laughs> okay, and I'm glad you're telling our listeners that and Kristen really will give us some details. This was no, I'm compassionate and the story ends and we're all happy. You're going to hear how painful and at the time, at the same time, how loving it was to deal with his transition and Fred became Seda and your transformation. Before we go into that, let's just clarify, and maybe you can do that, So let's clarify a person and distinguish a person's sex as assigned at birth physiologically with their gender identity. Kristen, can you do that for us? Absolutely. So an assigned sex, also called a biological sex, is the sex that you're assigned at birth, usually by a doctor who looks at your external genitalia and says, oh, it's a boy or oh, it's a girl which isn't always definitive even in that because there are chromosome things and they've discovered that people are intersex in ways that are not visible later on. But then, of course, there's this whole other piece, which is our gender identity. And that is something that's deep in the brain, and that is only what we ourselves feel ourselves to be in terms of gender. And that might be male, female, both male and female, neither male and female. So there's a wide spectrum of how people experience themselves. And, of course, we all kind of fall on a continuum of expressing more masculine or feminine traits, but the sense of true identity, who do you identify with? You know, are you more female? Are you male? Or are you both? That piece is gender identity. And they found some differences in the brains of people postmortem who are transgender that shows that they're more like the brains of those that are assigned to birth with, you know, the same gender marker or identity. Um, so that's interesting. And 0.6% mm. of our population is transgender. Um, and that means that there's there's a lot of us out there. Mm. Now, your husband, Fred, um, did seek help, and he was diagnosed as gender dysphoric. And maybe you can give us that definition. Absolutely. So with... Being transgender, some people don't experience extreme discomfort or pain with their bodies being at odds with the way that they understand themselves to be, but some people do, um, particularly if they're, they're dysphoric, if they um, identify with the opposite gender than that that they were born into. So um, in my husband's case, he identified as a woman and his body was very male, and that became increasingly painful. It had been like a long-term chronic pain that he hadn't even been fully aware of other than in depression when he was young. Um, But then once he realized what was going on, it became more and more intense. And it got to the point where he was definitely like suicidal. It was that strong. And um, we have the the 2015 transgender survey shows that 40% of our transgender population in the U.S. who are surveyed had attempted suicide at some point. And that's up from 5% of the regular population, Mm -hmm. so it gives you a sense Mm. of the intensity of anxiety they experience in that dysphoric state. Absolutely. So much despair, often secrecy, hiding, very limited at times, psychosocial and friendship connections, and and you really do let us know that Fred suffered in those ways. Now, to bring our listeners to your opening, you... You start your story or your journey, you're a young mother, you have a toddler, and you're nursing a baby of about three months. Um, 
you you folks deal with the house fire that sends you running into the street with the babies and a few garments and uh-huh. you then go spend some time at your mom. Uh, uh-huh. And that's when you get the phone call from your husband who says, I have to speak to you about something very important, and it has to do with clothing. Um, uh-huh. And so put us in your shoes at that point, because that seems to be the beginning of your journey. Right. So I was at my mom's house, and... I got this phone call from my husband, and he said, you know, I, I want to talk to you about something when you get home that's pretty serious. And I said, well, can you give me a hint as to what it's about? And he said, well, it's about clothes. And when he said that, my stomach just dropped because in the beginning of our time together in our marriage, there were a couple of instances where I discovered a dress of mine that had the waist ripped out, and I couldn't, you know, like broken, and I couldn't understand what was going on with that. And I remember holding the dress up and saying, how did that happen? And then my husband said from across the room, I'm so sorry, I won't do that again. And I looked at him and said, are you, you really, you, you, you put it on? And he said, yes, and I, I won't do it again. And then by the time the second dress happened, I said, you will never touch my clothes again. And I didn't understand, I had no context to put that in, even though I'd been raised liberal in Northern California, I didn't know anybody who was trans. I didn't even know anybody who knew anybody who was trans as far as I knew. And I didn't understand what he might be going through. All I knew that was that he was this Wyoming cowboy who'd you know, done all these masculine things in his life, and it didn't make sense. And so I really have a lot of compassion for people in denial because that was a state I had moved into was I put that information off into a back corner shelf of my mind and it just didn't exist. It didn't connect with anything else that made sense to me. And so when I got that phone call and he said he wanted to talk to me about clothes, I suddenly knew what it was all about and it just came screaming back that that there was something bigger that was connected to that and it was really scary. Mm. You know, um, when I, as I was reading the book, it occurred to me that in some ways you went through the initial stages of traumatic loss because first there was a disbelief like this can't be true. This makes no sense with the man who was an Alaskan fisherman, a firefighter, a rancher. And then at times, and here's I think where you expand and really talk about the gender um, roles that we are given in terms of the culture in protest, you say to him at one point, you're not a woman, because if you were a woman, you would know when you have a baby, you never come first. You would know that you would hold this in, and you would live with this for the sake of the rest of us. And I thought, yeah, she's got it. That is the role that, that mothers and women are given. And so it was interesting to me that your protest was really a reflection of what you come to look closer at, which is your gender role and your own sexual orientation. But in that one, you said, I'm not going to talk about makeup and earrings. Um, you were pretty, you were really pushing back for a while. Yeah, I was really angry. And part of it was that the, literally the way that my husband was watching me had shifted from watching me put on my makeup with a sense of awe and love and that tenderness with which a partner watches you prepare for, you know, an event for the evening. And suddenly I realized he was watching to see exactly how I got the mascara to not clump. (laughs) Yeah. That was a totally different thing. I was being like, it was a diagnostic procedure. And I just was so angry about that. And then, of course, the process that you described as of, him wanting to step into being a woman. And I was saying, you know, you, you, you know, you couldn't be a woman. You don't even know what it means to be a woman because you do this. And it was quite ironic, right, in re- reflection mm-hmm. that I was telling him that because I wasn't doing what I think it means to be a woman. <laughs> in that, in that yeah, yeah. Which is to just live with whatever is, right? Right. Now, one of the things, and this will tell, I know we, we I want you to read a piece from the book, but at some point I wanted readers to hear you say you didn't know that courage would taste like so much bile at the back of your throat. I mean, this was no easy path. Um, and, you know, in, in the remaining time in this section, let's have our listeners hear 
exactly what happens when at one point he goes to therapy, he learns he's had a childhood trauma, he throws away the the female clothes, but then he can't do it. And I think Uh you come back from being away with your little guys and you talk about in Terra, you met the man I married. Maybe you could read 85 and a little bit of 86 for us. Sure, sure. Yeah, so, I mean, in the great good fortune of the universe, I was returning from the nonviolent communication eight-day-long family camp. And every time I'd be away from my husband for any period of time, and that includes that first moment that you mentioned where I was with my mother, he would become a different person because without me to reflect the love and the picture of him that I had and so that he could take that in, he just had himself to reflect into and he didn't feel comfortable with himself. He never had. And so it became clear to him at this point when I was gone that he, he couldn't live anymore in this way of, um, of being a man. So here it is. In terror, I met with the man I'd married. Who was he now? Was he lost to me? Did I even want him? Fred's face looked worried, pale and drawn. Our hug was filled with apprehension. Our mutual love and attraction once flowed, now fear and uncertainty coursed. We hardly knew each other, hardly knew ourselves. I can't do it anymore, Fred said. I've tried being a man. I've been everything on my list that would make me one. I've been a soldier, a firefighter, a rancher, a fisherman, a husband, and a father. And still, I'm not me. I need to be true to who I am, he said. Even if it means losing us, I asked. I hope it won't, he said. I dearly hope it won't, and I don't know how it's all going to work out in the end, but I'm afraid I'm going to kill myself if I go on living like this. You're suicidal, I asked. Every day, he said. The only thing that stops me is I can't figure out a way to do it so that the kids won't know I killed myself. I don't want them to live with that. Oh, Fred. I'm so sorry, he said. I didn't want it to be like this. I didn't want to hurt you. I love you with all my heart. You're the... You're the best thing that's ever happened to me. And so are our kids, but I can't live this lie. I can't do it anymore. I cannot live with myself in such deceit. Not in front of you, not in front of God. I'm sorry, Kristen. I am so sorry. It's so powerful. It's so painful. But it's the kind of open transparency that I think helped you and Fred, who became Zeta, really make this journey possible. Thank you so much, Kristen. We're going to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live, and we're speaking with Kristen Collier. She's the author of Housewife, Home Remaking in a Transgender Marriage. Stay with us. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. What makes a great leader? Most have a vision, one that starts beyond the resources available and continues from that point into developing a solid plan, organization, and company. Leadership issues are discussed each week on VoltCast, illuminating leadership with host Jeff Smith. Jeff has years of experience as a leader and executive coach, and his guests will bring you information that can help a team of any size. Listen every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Why? Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do you long to have a better love life? Relationships can be hard, but throw sexual problems into the mix, and it's almost impossible to keep that close connection you want to have. Colette Milan, sex and relationship therapist, has been there. She will give you sound advice to turn your libido back on and bring the love back into your lovemaking. 
Tune in to Making Love with Colette Malone every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Kristen Collier. We're talking about transgender transition transgender marriage, and the necessary transformation that has to occur when you're the person who loves someone with gender dysphoria. They're not the only person transitioning. In fact, I think you, Kristen, have said they're transitioning to being more like themselves, and the person who loves them is trying to find out who are they going to be in, in the face of the transition. Now, with that Kristen, I want to ask you, people talk about the person who's the loved one who's been told by some, either their their spouse in this case, that they're going to transition. You're the one carrying now a secret. And mm. the, what was that like? And what was it like thinking about who you were going to tell? That was the hardest part of the entire journey, I have to say. And I'm a generally pretty open person. And during that time that my husband told me that he was going through this process of exploration, part of the problem was that we didn't know where the exploration was going to end. So it was about two years that he was basically trying to find out what was wrong but not risk our marriage in any way because we had this perfect marriage where we'd never fought and you know our biggest our biggest um, conflict was over where the Midwest was you know so we had a lot potentially at stake and so he wanted to find some way through it maybe it was connected to a childhood trauma or something but when there was no other way around it that's when he realized you know that he was you know fully needed to transition but even during the time that he thought that he, he was transgender but didn't necessarily need to transition to living in the opposite, you know, sex in terms of our, our culture and out in the greater world. Even during that time, it was a huge challenge to carry that secret. And it was not only the secret of who my husband really was, but also the secret that we were in an unknown territory, that there was something happening that I couldn't control, he couldn't control, and that was going to lead us somewhere that we didn't know and we didn't know what's going to be necessarily safe for our kids. And that's really scary to tell your family and your friends, especially when they already will likely have a picture that being transgender is somehow other or different and that it's, they would be worried that, you know, we wouldn't be accepted. Um, And again, you know, think back a, a decade ago, things were quite different even than they are now. And we're very fortunate to live on the, in, you know, on the, Pacific Northwest, things are, are more accepting, and I suppose in many of the bigger cities, things are more accepting than in, in other areas, so I'm really grateful for that as well. Hmm. So, it seemed like the hardest people were the family, but the friends were questionable also? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I didn't tell anyone for a while about, you know, in the, in the first month, I told my closest friend, and she was a pretty conservative Christian. <laughs> And her response was, oh, my gosh, Kristen, God wouldn't have done this to you. This is a sickness in your husband, and we're going to pray so that it's healed. And, you know, let us pray. And I thought, what? you know, on one hand, I was like, okay, good, we can maybe do that right away <laughs> and fix it all. And uh, But a bigger part of me said, well, hang on a minute, because I think that my husband has been working really hard to figure out what the problem is, and now he's figured it out, and it's on its own healing path. And so what if he's right, that the only way to healing is to fully embrace being, you know, a, a woman? And so it was really scary to hear that her picture of healing and my picture of healing were completely different. At that point, I didn't tell anybody else for a long time, and when I finally broke down and told a friend who was staying overseas in Europe, 
she she kind of um, accident. Well, it was it, it was this moment where she told me that she had a friend who had gone through this, and that there was really no room in the relationship for me anymore once this happened because you know every all bets were off as in terms of what the sexual orientation would be, and. You know, in a way, that's true, and in a way, it's not true. Sexual orientation is not directly linked to gender identity in any way, but it is true that we are all probably a little bit more fluid than we might imagine, and when your identity is in one gender, when you shift your identity around, you kind of change your your concept of yourself and your connection with yourself pretty drastically, and you take another look at your sexual orientation, too, so... Um, so we didn't know what would happen with that and, and where we would go. So it was really scary to hear that from another friend. So I didn't tell very many people. I was very much alone and we felt very isolated. And at one point mm. I remember hanging laundry and thinking, oh my gosh, if I had a light up map of the city and, and there was like a little light over everybody's house who was dealing with a transgender person in their household that they loved. I would probably see that I was not alone. I would probably see these little blinking lights light up and there would maybe be somebody, you know, two blocks away from me and another a half a mile away from me. But here we are, you know, doing our laundry and washing our dishes and, and holding this alone and what a tragedy is it, it is. And that's another reason why I wanted to bring my story out in the hopes that other people would also share their stories so that we are not experiencing ourselves as so isolated. Mm. And what was so impressive in a way to me is that despite the fact that in some, at the beginning, you can't tolerate even seeing Fred in female clothes, you come to a point where you actually help her, Zita, as she changes her name, to find the clothes, to Mm. actually go out together, and that brings you to have to question, well, wait a minute, people must think we are lesbians, two women, and then you push back to think, I don't know if this is my, this is not my orientation. So as you support Zeta's transition, you really have to take a look at your own needs. Yeah, and it was a very interesting moment for me when that happened because we went to brunch with another couple. That was our first time going out into the the big world as two women. And people did, as you said, people looked at me and and looked at her and thought, oh, you know, a lesbian couple. And and my identity, you know, they, they saw me as different than I see myself. And I suddenly felt that feeling of, of almost dysphoria, like, well, this is not... This is not how I see myself. And that's what Seda had experienced all of those years and lived with. And I suddenly got a glimpse of what that was like by having people see my sexual orientation differently. Um, and so, yeah, we went into, we went into brunch. And um, interestingly, we, we, we went into the wrong room of this big hotel conference center. And we walked into a conference that was being held it was a Mormon marriage conference on a weekend to remember instead of going into the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, we looked around and they kind of looked at us and a woman smiled and she said, are you looking for something else? I said, yeah, we're looking for a son. She said, yeah, I think you are in the wrong place. <laughs> but I thought we could really tell them how about, you know, making it, making it work with, with all kinds of challenges in the marriage, right. couldn't we? That's we were, true. We're going to keynote speakers for today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really was. And there are those kind of humorous spots actually throughout throughout your book. Now, in the midst of all of this, there are two little babies, two little boys who grow up during this journey. So I know our listeners are going to wonder, how do you tell kids? I mean, I think the first time you and Zetter tell the little boys, they're four and six. Right. Um, and maybe tell us what prompted you to tell them and maybe their reactions and how it unfolded. Okay. When Zeta began hormones and then made a commitment to start transitioning to live as a woman when she was not at work, so she was not going to transition to work. So there's a few different stages of transitioning. The first one um, is usually a social transition and, and for people who are transitioning from male to female, the medical transition also begins then. So she was um, having her beard 
lasered off and also um, and also starting hormones. And we wanted to let the kids know because she would then be dressing as a woman when she was at home. And so at that point, we had been working with this truth for a couple of years, and we tried to make it work, and we were still trying to make it work in our couple room, you know, as a couple romantically. But the biggest thing that impacted how we told our kids was that we were at peace with the fact that this was happening, and we were at peace with the uncertainty in on on some level of where this was taking us. What we were really strong in was our love for each other and for our family and that we at that point we had a pretty good sense that we had what it took to stay present with ourselves and each other no matter what happened that we had the Mm -hmm. resources to manage it and so we went into that conversation not with fear but with love and um, Seda told the boys you know ever since I was really small I had this feeling that there wasn't there was something that was not right and I wasn't sure what it was. And um, now that I'm much older, I suddenly realize that it's that I'm the wrong gender. I, I really feel like I was a woman born into a man's body and I need to stop living that lie. I want to, I want to live just as a woman from the rest for the rest of my life. So I'm going to be dressing as a woman at home and then I'm going to be, you know, transitioning slowly um, to be a, a woman full time everywhere. And I want to tell you that that has nothing to do with my, my love for you or, you know, my being your parent. So, you know, if you have any questions, this is a good time to ask. And there was like this quiet moment where the kids just kind of looked around as if we told them, you know, where we were going to go that weekend for a camping <laughs> trip or something. And then my older son said, our older son said, well, hmm, am I going to recognize you tomorrow? And she said, oh, yeah. It was yeah, a great question. Is- Right? Because, yeah, yeah I mean, question. it would have been great if, you know, my husband would have been, like, thrilled to be able to transition overnight, but it wasn't going to yeah. happen that way. So he had to say, no, you know, this is going to take a while, don't worry. And, she, and so my mm-hmm. son said, oh, okay. And he said, are we going to still get to play rough together and, and wrestle and stuff? And he said, yeah, yeah. And the younger one had no questions at all. He just took another mouthful of cereal and we went on. <laughs> um, and they started correcting my pronouns because at that point we also shifted pronouns when we spoke of my husband. We now spoke of her. And she was my parenting partner. And the boys decided to call her Maddie, which is kind of a cross between mother and daddy. Mm. But I think that primarily they took their cue and their comfort from our comfort with each other. And our comfort in holding them, we had a strength, we had a trust. They they trusted everything was going to be okay because that was the place that we spoke from. So I really, I advocate for that when people are in difficult times and challenging times in a partnership, you know, that they work through it enough to be able to share with the kids, you know, when they're in a place of compassion rather than in a place of anger and fear. Because I really think it makes a big difference in in the relationship with the kids and the kids' experience of potential trauma. Well, it's it's certainly so clear, and I'll just tell our listeners, your involvement with gardens, nature, your boys, that there is a whole subplot that goes on in your book in which you come to start to have male friends and then male lovers and you you actually are able to move into some other relationships but in every case it's so clear that your boys come first you you say you have the acid test the person has to be safe and productive and your boys learn music from one person um, jumping in waves in Florida with someone else But there's a sense that your boys have, it seems, and it reminds me of John Duffy's book, The Available Parent, that they know they come first with you and with Seda, Maddie, Uh um, because it's almost a relief to see that you find a way to meet your needs, too. Yeah, and I think that really being so present with that early process when it was so difficult to find my own identity and to um, find a place where I could be compassionate in my heart and really kind of trust in some kind of higher power to every day rest into something that I had some relief in. That continued for me when things were 
less intense and less full of anxiety. And again, I wanted to definitely capture that in this memoir so that people could see that there's life after the initial transition too and how that life organically developed. You know, we didn't, we didn't set out to open the box so much as to open our family and have other lovers, but that's how it worked out. And we, there was a point at which it, the romantic relationship between Seda and I stopped and uh, we both were available to have romantic relationships outside of that. Um, and so we continued, but it was really I, I, the self-care that I learned in those early days of even just, you know, if I had no time for anything else to just breathe and be present when I was hanging laundry to the point where I was only doing that and it became a Zen practice. So I had lots of little Zen practices. And uh, I have to say that the amount that I learned during a potentially traumatic time really opened my heart. You mentioned courage earlier, and it, it did taste like bile initially, but it was something that I learned that when you, when you have your heart broken open, it becomes open to so much, to all possibility. And um, the concept behind nonviolent communication is the word um, ahimsa or nonviolence in, in Sanskrit, which means a heart so open that it knows no enemies. And I sense that during that initial time that Seda and I were together and I had this picture of this white picket fence with my husband, Fred, and then, as you said, I had this experience of my husband dying, really, and I don't feel like he and I got a divorce, but I lost the husband that I had, and now I, I live with somebody who's like my husband's sister. Um, but in that time of, of breakage and falling apart and grieving, my heart really broke open, and I learned from that process something that could really strengthen me. And that's where I feel that this memoir is very powerful. It is the story of a couple who is working with a transgender um, transition in their family, but every couple runs into some kind of roadblock at some point that begs them to transform themselves and their relationship, whether it's somebody had an affair or a child is born with disabilities, whatever it is, we have a choice at the point of that challenge to either close up, close off, separate, or to open our hearts to meet it with courage. And the Latin root of the word courage is cur, which is heart. So it really speaks to me that courage is about about going into something that we are what that we fear with an open heart and discovering in that trust and connection with ourselves that we have what it takes to show up with compassion that we're built that way but, it, but we have to discover it moment by moment mm-hmm. and in that I realized that I really I, I deserved the self-care that would help me to stay in that place because, um, or to come back to that place over and over because the people in my life, my life are gifted by my ability to keep myself whole and present. Mm. You know, beautifully said. We're going to take a brief break and come back maybe and talk about some of the things you used and even used with the boys in terms of resilience and stress reduction. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Kristen Collier. She's the author of Housewife, Home Remaking in a Transgender Marriage. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. 
It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Kristen Collier, the author of Housewife, Home Remaking in a Transgender Marriage. And we're really talking about all that goes into the transition of actually everyone when someone you love is needing to transition to the gender they identify with. Kristen, when uh, I'm just I'm going to encourage every listener to read the book because it's it's more than a journey. Um, how did you cope? If we were to say, what did you use to get through this very rocky, at times painful and inspiring journey? Well, initially, when I was in that period of time where I wasn't telling friends and I felt very alone, I would take my dog and I would go walking in the woods. And I would usually go early in the morning and there wasn't anybody out on these trails that we would take out along the edge of our city in the ridgeline. And during that time, I really allowed myself to just cry, sometimes even howlingly so, and I just fell apart. And I also walked and sometimes I ran and I just let my body really experience the grief and the confusion And then often I would get to this place. There was one particular walk that I would take on a regular basis, and it had been the woods until it got to this clearing. And in that clearing, I would stop, and um, my my sort of praying (laughs) changed. I'm not actually religious, but I'm definitely very spiritual. And when I would get to that place, I would open my heart, and instead of praying for particularly anything, I would just be open to whatever came to me, and I would get a word or or some sense of what it was that would feed me that day, that would get me through the tough time. And at one point when I, I went out there in January, and I was just, you know, came to the place where I had this beautiful, expansive overlook, and I just put my hands together and breathed into, you know, this question of what's important for me today. A hummingbird flew out in front of me and and looked around and kind of just flew in a little circle and then left. And I thought, wow, a hummingbird is being fed during these dark times in the middle of winter. How is it even possible that a hummingbird can be alive here? And it was really a message for me. So not only did I take from nature the solace of beauty and um, connection with the earth, but also the messages of of the animals and flora that were around me about what it takes to sustain oneself through the darkest winter and to come once again into spring. So nature mm-hmm. was a big piece of it. And then I would go back and I would write poetry. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I would write poetry with my hands wet because I was, I was homemaking full-time and I was often canning and drying fruits and things. And so my hands were always wet. And then I would, you know, turn around and write a blog post or, or write some poetry and, you know, get water everywhere. But that mm-hmm. was very, became a very integrated piece of my life. And in the memoir, I... I have all of those different pieces, which were so important to me. I think you're wise to to point out that there's a variety of different things that were part of sustaining myself psychologically and emotionally through this time and spiritually. And I tried to, to put those together so that the reader would have the experience of 
reading a blog post and then going back to the narrative and reading these snapshots that are like little vignettes of our day um, or our days and then, you know, a piece of poetry. And so it's not straight narrative all the way through because my life didn't happen in a straight narrative. There were these moments Mm -hmm. where I reflected on what, what was going on inside of me, inside of our family from a different lens. So um, the garden was another big piece and that, you know, again, that's a different form of nature. But what I found was when I built a garden with the idea of it being a sustainable forest garden, a garden that could potentially sustain itself, that the leaves would fall from the trees and would become a mulch for the annuals. And then I planted as many perennials as possible. So I transformed our almost quarter acre lot into a little urban farm and we had chickens and rabbits and we even had bees for a while. Um, That was a labor of love and a labor of intensive um, bringing into presence, especially with the bees. It's amazing how when you go into a colony of bees, there's no sense of hierarchy of who's more important. Even the queen knows that she has to go if she's not functioning in a way that works for the whole. So again, those lessons that I, that I took from nature and from having a connection with our food as we grew it. And I also took great joy in knowing that I was sharing that with our children. So there was a sense of wholesomeness that this transition, a lot of times gender transition is seen as an isolated event. And I think that the word transition suggests you're moving from one territory to another. And what I really wanted was to create a territory with our family and in our yard and garden that would be wholesome and healthy for Seda to travel across and for me to travel across as I became my new self outside of our marriage since I did marry when I was 18 years old, you know, really finding who I was and what was most important to me, which ultimately I came to know is to grow my capacity for love and help other people do the same. I came to know that in the course of learning to garden. So let me ask, because I know our listeners are probably wondering, and and when you read the book, you see how much Kristen involved her little boys in the garden, in sports, in climbing trees, finding snakes. These are outdoor people. You want them to be your neighbors when you think that, when you see what she, she actually cultivates in her urban farm. Now, some folks asked me, well, now these kids are 16 and 17 What do they say now? How are they getting along now? Um, So I'd say, Kristen, do the boys ever say to you, you know, Ma, what you really should have done, or I wish you had, or what do teens say when they've lived through this transition? Interestingly, they look back and they can barely remember a time when Seda was a man. So something I haven't said yet is that when Seda lived full-time as a woman when she started that she became emotionally available in a way that she had not been before to her children and so she became more aware of them she became more able to interact emotionally and they began to really enjoy her as a parent whereas before with her father not so much Um, Mm. so that was actually relief for all of us and now that they're much older it's really kind of a non, it's, it is a completely non-issue. I mean, they have, they have two parents, and that's what's important. And they actually feel tremendous gratitude that we practice nonviolent communication or compassionate communication because we stay present with them about everything. And so if anything comes up, if they have a concern, then we address it. But they are exploring their own, you know, gender identities and sexual orientations at this time. And they're involved in um, a program called Our Whole Lives, which is a curriculum that is a social justice-oriented curriculum that um, teaches not only sex education but about gender and um, and all of those those pieces that come into identity making for young people. And they knew more about you know all of those pieces going into that program than a lot of the the teachers even. I'm sure. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, well- yeah, one of them even was saying that he gets frustrated at school because they'll ask on a on a survey, you know, do you identify as homosexual, heterosexual, or transgender? And, you know, he'll explain to them, transgender is not a sexual orientation. <laughs> it's a gender <laughs> identity question. So they spend some of their time kind of educating people around them, but they really have always, we have always treated our situation as something that we could educate people about, that we have this information we can give as a gift rather than going into the world in a needy way of like, oh, you need to treat us, you know, with care and respect because we're, it's, 
it, it's always been, you know, we've been very fortunate to be close to each other and to feel very healthy and wholesome as a unit. So there hasn't been any kickback, any pain. We are all very close. We do things together. And now I have a, a partner who's been living with us for a couple of years, and he's a chef. And we have dinners together every night, often for, with food from the garden. And the kids are just, we're all close. There's not there's not any conflict around the transition, even now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, almost had that feeling because I think at one point in the book, uh, the question was, do the, do the, the voice rest, do you tell your friends? Do you not tell your friends? And they were very cool about saying, well, sometimes it's just too much work. Sometimes if we think a person could get it, we do. I mean, there's, there, there seemed very little tension about it. They seemed, yeah. you know, so typical and they love sports and they do go well in school and just just really very cool kids. So let me ask you, in, in the interest of time, Kristen, how would people find you? And I wondered if you could give us a take-home message. Sure. So the website uh, for, for the book is at kristinkcollier.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-I-N-K and then Collier, C-O-L-L-I-E-R.com. And we, it recently won a Nautilus Award, which is great. That's for better, great. better books for a better world. Yeah. Um, and, and the take-home message, I would say, is I would love... You know, in in sharing this book, I would hope that people have an opportunity to live vicariously through a conflict that really opened the heart of me and of our family, and that we maintained and deepened our connection and intimacy. So, you know, living, living through conflict is gritty, but if you can treat conflict like an opportunity, then you can receive gifts that will keep on giving the rest of your life. And that's, that's such a wonderful thing to be cherished. Mm. Kristen, I really thank you for coming on the show. The show, as well as your book, really, it gives us the gift of transparency about gender transition and the whole idea that we want people to understand it so they won't fear it, they won't push back with violence. This is really something that's part of the norm of many families and communities. So thank you for a beautiful book, a wonderful show, and a real important message. Thank you so much, Kristen. Thank you so much, Suzanne. You're welcome. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this in any prior show as a podcast. By 6 o'clock tonight, this will be a podcast on my host site, on Voice America's site, on the podcast app of your iPhone, and under iTunes. You just go to Voice America, Psych Up Live on Sketcher. It's very available as a podcast. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Mostly next week, please take care, thank you, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week. 